the Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. When Jesus of Nazareth casts out a demon, God in the flesh is casting out that demon. When Jesus cleanses a leper, it's the God-man who is cleansing that leper. Which is why when the Lord preaches and teaches people, the crowds, they marvel at his authority. His teaching isn't like the teaching of the scribes and the religious leaders of the day. Uh, theirs is a derived authority. They would qualify every reading, every judgment with Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says that. Whereas Jesus, he receives his authority directly from the Father in heaven. His teaching is qualitatively different because his knowledge of God is unmediated. And in Mark's Gospel, the distilled essence of the content of Jesus' preaching is found in chapter 1, verse 15. The evangelist describes it as the good news of God. The Gospel of God. Mark 1, 15. The time has come. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, if you were to ask me, Pastor John, what are you, uh, what, what's your sermon going to be about this week? What's your sermon going to be about next week and the following week? Um, well, there's going to be some variety to my answer, thankfully, because um, I'm always preaching a different text from the Bible. Uh, uh, but Jesus is an itinerant preacher, right? Uh, and as he travels from region to region, from village to village, he preaches the same gospel theme over and over and over again. The time has come. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In other words, a new era of fulfillment has begun. The kingdom of God has come near with my ministry as John the Baptist prophesied. God's kingdom, his rule over people's hearts and lives begins now. All that was prophesied beforehand in the Old Testament now is the time for those things to be fulfilled. God's good timing is wrapped up with me. By God's sovereign decision, God has made this point in time, the beginning of my public ministry, the critical one in which all the moments of promise and fulfillment in the past now find their significance. So, repent of your sins and believe in the good news which I authoritatively speak as God's anointed one. And then Jesus proves his authoritative claims by doing the works of God's anointed one and pushing back Satan's kingdom of darkness. Jesus preaches the kingdom of God. So you'd think today, in 2023, there'd be no mistake regarding the nature of the kingdom of God and what God expects of its citizens. That's pretty much all Jesus ever spoke about. But one of the most divisive, hot-button issues the confessing church faces at this very moment, the issue that has Twitter or X ablaze, is, is making book publishers rich and conference organizers scrambling to find venues big enough to hold everyone, is the nature of the kingdom of God. It's tragic but frankly, and I don't say this lightly, but frankly, there's a great deal of false 
teaching concerning the kingdom of God, teaching which destroys both the plot line of the Bible and the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not being dramatic. It's that serious. The kingdom of God is Jesus' main teaching emphasis for good reason. Because kingdom citizenship is tied directly to the good news that saves eternal souls. It's tied directly to our evangelism. I'm speaking both of our incentive to evangelize and the content of the message preached. Our understanding of the kingdom is wrapped up with our existence in this fallen world, a world corrupted by pain, sin, and death. And what we're considering today in Mark chapter 4 are teachings and parables that Jesus taught concerning the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of the kingdom's king. We're going to look at a lamp on a stand, the parable of the seed growing secretly, and the parable of the mustard seed. And to give credit where it's due, I got a lot of help this morning from a chapter in a fantastic little book by Greg Gilbert called What is the Gospel? There's actually this pamphlet on the back that sort of a, a, it condenses all that into three pages. So check this out. This is, this is very worthy. Uh, as well, I also received a lot of help from an article by Don Carson on this topic. And we should probably start there uh, before commencing on an exposition of verses 12 or 21 to 34, the text that our sister Caverne read for us earlier. Uh, the New Testament concept of kingdom needs to be clearly defined going into this portion of Scripture today. We all need to be on the same page with this. We can't be coming at it from different directions. So, because, but that's actually it's very challenging because kingdom means different things in different contexts. It's a flexible term. Jesus doesn't use it only in one sense. So if you look at your bulletin, or up here, you see two things. The New Testament concept of kingdom the first is universal and saving in relation to people. And then secondly, already here and not yet come in relation to time. And if you have a terrible memory like I do, it might be a good idea to actually write that on the inside cover of your own Bible and then you'll always have it with you. I mean, this, if, you, if this isn't understood, reading through the four Gospels is going to be very difficult. This is what Jesus talked, this is what he preached. So, what does the Bible mean when it says the kingdom of God is universal? It means, in one sense, in one sense, we're all citizens of the kingdom of God, whether we like it or not, whether we believe in Jesus Christ or not. In this sense, a kingdom is equivalent to God's sovereign reign over his entire creation. This is God's creation, right? We all live in it. Christian, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, Every human being is born into this universal kingdom. We're automatically citizens. God is automatically our king in that sense. And the, the king, King Jesus, he rules over everybody, whether he's recognized or honored as king or not. However, in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless he's born again by the Spirit of God, he can neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. Remember that? So in that sense, people aren't just born into the kingdom automatically, are they? They have to be born again. And if we start working through all of Jesus' kingdom parables, and there's lots of them, we soon discover who's in the kingdom varies from parable to parable. 
Some parables refer to the sovereign reign of God over every person on this planet. But other parables refer to this subset of God's sovereign reign under, where, under which there is acceptance with God and eternal life and entrance into that kingdom turns on responding properly to Jesus in faith. So, just to recap that part, in relation to people, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is universal. It depends on the text. And another sense, it depends on the text, where it's referring to God's redemptive rule, his salvation reign, his salvation authority, his king dominion over those redeemed by Jesus Christ. Universal and saving. But, but just not universally saving, okay? I'm not saying that. It's universal and saving, not universally saving. So far, so good? Well, there's another aspect to the kingdom of God that makes things a tad complex, and it's as it relates to time. So we're moving now from people to time. There's an already here, not yet come tension to this concept of the kingdom of God. How's that for a brain twister? Already, not yet. On the one hand, Jesus preaches certain parables to get across the fact that the climactic Big Bang finale kingdom hasn't arrived yet. Right? For instance, the parable that begins this chapter, the parable of the seed among the soils. We looked at this last week. Uh, the kingdom doesn't come in an instantaneous flash with utterly effective division between the genuine Christians and all the hypocrites. Right? It comes slowly. There's varying responses. Or you can think of, of the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds. Right? They both grow up together. There isn't this utterly effective division between the two. They both grow together. In the last chapter of Matthew's Gospel, we're told that this side of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to King Jesus. That means King Jesus is reigning right now, even though his rule is contested by billions of people on this planet. Billions. To use the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus must reign until he has destroyed all his enemies, the last of those enemies being death itself. So, all of the Father's royal authority is now mediated through his Son, through Jesus. He reigns over heaven and earth, even though he must reign, his reign must be contested until the last enemy is destroyed. But it's just a fact. His kingdom is already here. It's already operating. It's already being inaugurated. On the other hand, there's a not yet component related to time, referring to the kingdom of God. Despite all our Lord accomplished during his earthly ministry and overpowering, overthrowing the powers of evil, Jesus didn't fully and finally establish God's rule on earth, did he? We're not living in the new heavens and new earth yet. The strong man is bound, but he's not destroyed. Evil is defeated, but it's not annihilated. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not been consummated. And there are all sorts of texts that speak of that future state. The Apostle John, he foresees a time in Revelation 11:15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. In Philippians 2, 10 to 11, Paul announces a time when every knee 
will bow before King Jesus. As well, many biblical passages uh, picture believers inheriting the kingdom at the end, the kingdom still to come, the not yet here kingdom. Universal and saving as it relates to people, already here, not yet come in relation to time. But where things go off the rails in many segments of the church today, particularly, I have to say, in urban centers like Toronto, it's when Christians say, all right, let's go make this happen. Let's make it happen. Uh, Let's bring about the kingdom of God here on earth through our efforts at making the world a better place. Sweeping political change. Legal reform, more soup kitchens, more homeless shelters. Let's cancel third world debt. Let's volunteer at AIDS hospitals in Africa. This is what Jesus came to do. Let's be his hands and feet. This is the gospel. This is how we advance the kingdom of God. This is all for the purpose of bringing about the kingdom of God. This is kingdom work I'm doing down here at the detox center. I'm I'm following a kingdom ethic. I'm redeeming the culture. Christian, if you're thinking along those sorts of lines, I need to say you're in serious error. I'm sure you don't mean to, but you've completely cast off your moorings from the Bible storyline. You've detached yourself from a progressive, sequential understanding of salvation history. Where's the cross in that sort of thinking? If you're talking like that, where's the cross? Where's the returning king of glory who comes to consummate his kingdom? If if your understanding of God's kingdom, if in your understanding of it, God's kingdom is all about cultural transformation, cultural redemption. If that becomes the great promise and point of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you've pushed the cross of Jesus, deliberately or not, from its prime position. That's serious business. Christian, if if your highest excitement and joy are ignited by the promise of a reformed culture rather than the work of Jesus on the cross, you are in error. If your most fervent appeals are for people to join God in his work in changing this world rather than repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, you're in error. If you say the Bible's storyline pivots on the remaking of this world rather than the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. You are in error. Because with that sort of thinking, Christianity becomes less and less about grace and faith and more a religion of live like this and we can change the world. But that's not Christianity. That's moralism. And moralism destroys the gospel. Please don't misunderstand me. Christians can and should be involved in acts of mercy and justice and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We should seek 
to be politically involved. Thank God that we can in a country like Canada. We should seek legal reform. Thank God we can in Canada. But always with a biblically informed perspective on what it is that we're doing. A biblically informed perspective. And always maintaining a biblical distinction on what we do as a gathered church, the whole congregation, all of us together, and as individual Christians living in society. And with a biblically informed perspective on what we can hope to accomplish in this fallen world, this side of the New Jerusalem. Now, what I just said there is probably 20 sermons worth of texts all combined into one five-minute spiel. But with all of that under your belts, let's turn to our first point today. Point number one, in the consummated kingdom, all will acknowledge Jesus as the king of the kingdom, though now... His glory is hidden. Verse 21 of Mark 4. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on a stand? Uh, That's fine, but a, a more formal translation of the text would actually have the lamp as the subject, though, of both sentences. It's an important distinction. He's saying, does the lamp come for the purpose of being put under a bowl or a bed? Does it not come, the lamp, for the purpose of being put on a lampstand? And when we phrase it like that, it's very clear to see Jesus is referring to himself. Jesus is the lamp who comes, the lamp not placed under a bowl or under a bed, but on a lampstand, right? To give salvation light to everyone. Jesus is the lamp of God who comes into this dark world to enlighten. He comes to reveal. And just as we wouldn't light a lamp to conceal its light under a bed, that doesn't make any sense, neither has God brought his kingdom near in the person of Jesus Christ, in the person of his Son, for the ultimate purpose of concealing Jesus' glory. Verse 22, For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. See, Jesus is God in human flesh. But as we read in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus manifests the form of God in the form of a slave with much humiliation and hiddenness and weakness and obscurity. But that's just a prelude. That's just a prelude. The day is coming when there will be an open manifestation of Jesus' divine glory when that which is concealed is now brought out into the open. Verse 22 speaks of Jesus' glorious return, when our king consummates his kingdom, the not-yet kingdom. And on that day, Jesus will be known as the king of the kingdom, and all will see. Verse 23, If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. In other words, wake up, right? Open your spiritual ears. Consider carefully what you hear as Jesus is teaching this, because the care that you expend in understanding and responding to Jesus' kingdom parables will be proportionally rewarded. 
I'm going to say that again because that's what he's getting at. The care that you expend in understanding and responding to Jesus' kingdom parables will be proportionally rewarded. The degree to which you hear Jesus' parables will determine the measure of your understanding. Skip down to verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand or as they were able to hear. Verse 34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. And in verse 33, for the tenth time now in chapter 4, Mark emphasizes the importance of hearing, the importance of understanding what Jesus preaches. Do you recall from last week, Jesus' parables either lighten or obscure, depending on one's God-given ability to hear. Those who hear find them revelatory, but those who are unable to hear find parables opaque and confusing, something they can be dismissed Let me just give you a very sad, rebellious example of what this would look like. I pray this isn't the case, but there could be someone here thinking along these lines. Pastor John, are you seriously telling me that according to this teaching, the day is coming when there will be an open manifestation of Jesus' divine glory? When that which is concealed is brought out into the open... There, there is coming a day, you're saying, when, when Jesus will be known as the king of the kingdom and everyone on the planet is going to see this? No, I don't believe it. This teaching is like one of Aesop's fables. Therefore, I will rebelliously dismiss it. I can dismiss it. It has no consequence on my life at all. I dismiss it. Friend, beware. Beware. Let me plead with you. People don't naturally have ears to hear God's word. All of us, all of us are born spiritually deaf. We all need to be given ears by God to hear what he has to say in his word, which means if you don't have ears to hear, if what I'm saying right now is I'm preaching God's word faithfully, if it sounds like nonsense to you, if you don't have ears to hear, you must give God no rest. Give him no rest. You must bang down God's door and plead with him in prayer for understanding. Those who hear and those who knock until the door is opened will find the kingdom disclosed to them. But if you are hurried in your search, if your knock on the door of life is this tentative brief, you find a once joyous invitation to enter into God's kingdom to have faded into a mirage of disbelief. It'll be just taken from you. Be warned. This is the word of the Lord. A day is coming when there will be an open manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ. When that which is concealed right now is brought out into the open, a day when Jesus will be known as the king of the kingdom and all will see. It will be as we read in Revelation 1-7. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be.
Amen. Or Philippians 2, 9 and following. God exalted him. He exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When's that day going to be? When will the time come when every person bows the knee to Jesus and declares he is God and he has the right to rule to the glory of God the Father? The, the church does that right now. But on the last day, when Jesus judges the world, every knee, even the knees of the most hardened sinners, the most wicked of demons, even Satan himself, will be irresistibly compelled to this act of submission. On that day, no one will be able to resist God's mighty power. His enemies will be made his footstool. And all who have raged against his kingly authority will be put to shame. It's as we'll sing in our closing song today, Every knee shall bow before the judge of all eternity. That's not just concepts you read about in the Bible or you hear preached. We actually sing it as Christians. Every knee shall bow before the judge of eternity. We sing that together. On the last day, some will gladly, gladly bend the knee to the Lord Jesus. But others will bow the knee because they cannot resist. Just using, I think, my sanctified imagination, I can just imagine an angel grabbing somebody by the back of the neck and pushing them down to kneel before Jesus Christ on that last day before they're cast into hell. In the consummated kingdom, all will acknowledge Jesus as the king of the kingdom, though now his glory is hidden. So don't be fooled, friend. Don't, don't be put off by the king of the kingdom. Don't be stumbled by the fact that Jesus' glory is now hidden under a bed or under a bowl, as it were, that light. Uh, and just as you're not truly hearing, truly understanding the hidden glory of King Jesus, perhaps also the hidden glory of Jesus' kingdom, his kingdom is falling on your deaf ears and your hard heart. Perhaps you see no need for urgency, no need for haste in repenting of your sins and believing in the good news of the kingdom that Jesus preaches. Because the form the kingdom of God takes in this already stage, this inaugurated stage, doesn't really impress you. This is precisely what the next two parables clarify. Here we learn that God's kingdom begins humbly. Very humbly. Growth is slow. Sometimes it's almost invisible, but it produces ultimate consequences all out of proportion to its insignificant beginnings. And at the end of the age, after the kingdom has grown to all its fullness, comes the judgment. Point number two in your bulletin. God's kingdom comes through slow growth. So be a patient farmer, Christian. Verse 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. 
All right, just, just stop there for a second. Remember, this is, this is the God-man. This is the Word made flesh. He's revealing God Himself and everything He says and who He is. And He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And we're, just, we're hanging on that, okay? And, and then I think if we had never read this parable before, if we never heard it aloud or preached or whatever, I think where would we just naturally go? in our own minds with some kind of a comparison for what Jesus is about to say. He says, the kingdom of God is like, surely, a great mountain. A, tr- a tremendous typhoon, a mighty earthquake, a glorious supernova. People all over the planet will say, there's the kingdom of God, it's right there, I can see it, it's huge, and it's wonderful, and it's glorious, it's instantaneous, and it's cataclysmic. And there's Jesus, I can see him sitting on his sovereign throne, reigning over all of heaven and all of earth, he's he's shining like a thousand suns. It's the kingdom of God, and there's the king right there. Verse 26, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. And perhaps you're thinking, what? Scattered seed? Good grief. No wonder people don't believe in or worship the God of the Bible. I can't imagine a more banal, commonplace comparison. No, if if people could only see the kingdom of God as it manifests itself in some glorious form, then everybody would believe. I would believe today. No problem. Right now, just, just give me Jesus on his throne, shining like a thousand suns, and I believe like that. But no, God doesn't work that way, and he never has. God incarnates, right? He doesn't appear in the sky in all of his glorious splendor. Instead, he's born in a smelly barn to a teenager suspected of fornication in a backwater province of the Roman Empire. 30 years later, he's crucified. And from that despised cross, Jesus reigns as the king of the universe. Loved ones, the kingdom of God and the reign of his son is unlike anything we could have anticipated. Look at verse 27. Speaking of the farmer, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. And and I think our cultural transformation friends need to note that. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, verse 28, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. At first, the farmer may be unaware of its growth, but despite the farmer's absence, his ignorance, the soil produces grain all by itself, the text says. The seed contains within itself a power of generation and an orderly process of growth. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. All of that transpires completely apart from the farmer. Actually, apart from sowing, The only human activity in this parable is waiting in faith, confident of a harvest to come. That's it. The farmer sleeps, he gets up, and life goes on as it always has. But all the while, there's another process at work. 
right? Slowly, imperceptibly, the seed sprouts and grows all by, all by itself. The soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. Verse 49, as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And this harvest is a reference to the judgment that takes place when Jesus comes to consummate his kingdom. I think something that could just kind of give us an interesting sidelight into this text is looking at 2 Peter chapter 3. If you want to turn there, 2 Peter 3, 4. If you are using the uh, 2011 uh, church Bibles on the back table, that's on page 1227. Let me just read this text to you, though. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 and following. The apostle writes, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, and we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years now, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. But these waters also, by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So do you see? I think the, the sinful skepticism we read up here in 2 Peter, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything just goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That skepticism is a result of awaiting the arrival of the kingdom like it's a bolt of lightning. Like it's some supernova happening in the sky that we all can see. It's commanding, it's overwhelming, it's instantaneous, it's cataclysmic, whatever. If only there was something spectacular I could see with my own eyes that verifies that God's kingdom has indeed been inaugurated. Not the changed lives of forgiven sinners. Not the miracle of the church. What I require is a supernova of divine glory then I might lend this kingdom of God thing some more credence. I mean, what's this slowly growing seed nonsense? Again, friend, if that describes you, may God have mercy on your soul. Pray for ears to hear. The kingdom of God is advancing all around you. The seed is growing. Even though Christians are meeting in venues in need of extensive renovations, are being ridiculed in the public arena, are being tortured in prisons all over the world. Even so, make no mistake, God's people are being saved. God's kingdom is growing. And one day at the end of the age, after the kingdom has grown to all its fullness, Jesus will return in harvest judgment. And if you're a believer, 
in Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, listen carefully. In Jesus' day, zealots tried to force the kingdom of God onto the stage by revolution. The Pharisees, they believed that the coming kingdom could be midwifed into existence by scrupulous legal observance. But Jesus says we're to wait for the kingdom like what? Patient farmers. The faith Jesus requires of his disciples is to sleep and rise with humble confidence that God rules from his sovereign throne. His kingdom is advancing. So, Christian, be calm. Be confident. Be cheerful. Right? Be tranquil. Be composed. Trust. Trust God. God's kingdom comes through slow growth. Be a patient farmer. Work hard. Pray hard to get that perspective on life. This parable... I think is a message about rightly interpreting and responding to this period of apparent, apparent inaction in the already here kingdom of God. I mean, how are our brothers and sisters in North Korea or Saudi Arabia responding to a text like this, right? How do they look at life? Despite appearances to the contrary, the kingdom is growing. The harvest will come but it will come in God's time and it's going to come in God's way. Not by human effort or in accordance with human logic. So Christian, be a patient farmer, supremely confident in the coming consummated kingdom and the coming king, our Lord Jesus. Which leads to our third very brief point. Point number three, God's kingdom begins humbly, becomes glorious, and will include Gentiles amongst its citizens. Verse 30. Again, Jesus said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall be used to describe it? And the same theme again. It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed on all the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And the point of this parable is that the glorious eternal kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ arises from obscurity. It arises from insignificance. It's growing quietly, day by day, though it's hidden and easily overlooked. But a foundation for the work has been laid that will encompass the globe, and even Gentiles will be citizens of this kingdom. The, the mention of birds perching in the shade, that speaks to Gentiles. Uh, the Old Testament prophets occasionally use the image of birds nesting in branches to allude to the inclusion of the nations among God's chosen people. You can see that in Psalm 104, verse 12, Ezekiel 17, 23, Ezekiel 31, 6, and Daniel 4, 9 to 21. So, in addition to the surprising growth of the kingdom, coming out of insignificance, apparently, the parable of the mustard seed also contains a hint of God's grace to all the nations of the earth. God's kingdom begins humbly but becomes glorious. Remarkably small beginnings produce amazingly large results. The kingdom produces ultimate consequences all out of proportion to its insignificant beginnings. It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants. 
with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Okay, it's time to start landing the plane. Let me close today by reiterating and clarifying a point that I've already addressed. I want to come back to it. I hope I'm not like just beating a dead horse here, but I'm coming back to it because this error, this misunderstanding is so prevalent in evangelicalism today. Brothers and sisters, I mean, just, just leave our corporate worship today understanding this one thing and God has answered our prayers for understanding. I truly believe this. Brothers and sisters, we are not able as human beings to bring about either the establishment of God's kingdom or its consummation. It's amazing to hear certain Christians wax rapturous about the new heavens and new earth, the heavenly city into which nothing evil ever enters, uh, the world emptied of death and war and oppression, uh, the resurrected people of God living joyfully before His face forever. And then they say, okay, <clears throat> let's go make it happen. What? No. Where is the cross in that kind of thinking? Where's the returning king of glory who comes to consummate his kingdom? Despite all our best efforts to make this world a better place, the consummated kingdom of God promises in the Bible, those, those promises will only come about when the king Jesus, when he returns and actually makes it happen. We, we have to understand that. It protects us, beloved, from a wrong and ultimately deceiving optimism about what we will be able to accomplish in this fallen world, this side of eternity. H hear me. The biblical storyline forces us to recognize that until King Jesus returns, our social and cultural victories will always, always be tenuous, never permanent. Can you point to any nation, state, any city, anywhere that is utopia and has been so for the last 300 years. Not this side of the New Jerusalem. Yes, Christians can and should be involved in acts of mercy and justice and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Yes, Christians should seek to be politically involved. Thank God we can in a country like Canada. Yes, Christians should seek legal reform. Thank God we can in Canada. But Christians will never bring about the kingdom of God. Only God himself can do that. The heavenly Jerusalem comes down from heaven. It's not built from the ground up. And even more importantly, remembering that the kingdom will only be consummated when Jesus returns, that rightly centers our hopes, our affections, our longings on Jesus himself. We always need to be praying and yearning, even so, come Lord Jesus. Are you homesick for your king? Not just heaven itself, but actually to be with your king, to be with Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Our longing for his return needs to increase, brothers and sisters. Our, our prayers to him need to grow more fervent. And our love for him needs to deepen. In short, our desires and hopes 
center firmly and rightly, not so much on the kingdom as on the kingdom's king. I hope you see that. Anything less is a distortion. So, friend, let me ask, do you want to see what the kingdom looks like at least before it's made perfect? Do you want to see the life of the kingdom of God lived out in this age? Look at the church. Look at this church. This is where God's wisdom is displayed. Where people who were formerly alienated are reconciled and united because of Jesus and where God's Holy Spirit is at work remaking and rebuilding human lives. The church is where God's people learn to love one another and bear one another's burdens and sorrows, to weep together, rejoice together, and to hold one another accountable. The kingdom of God is God's redemptive reign in the person of His Son, Jesus the Messiah, which has broken into this present evil age and is now visible in the church. Do you want to see what the kingdom looks like before it's made perfect? Do you want to see the life of the kingdom of God lived out in this age? Then look at Mount Pleasant Road Baptist Church. It is an outpost of heaven. Look at New City Baptist Church. It is an outpost of heaven. Of course, it's not perfect. But the local church is where the life of the kingdom is lived and showcased to a world desperately in need of salvation. Amen.